0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello and welcome to another in our Race in America series on Washington Post Live. I'm Jerry Brewer, a sports columnist here at The Post. My guest today goes by many names. Some like to call him CP3. Others go with the point guide. Now he can add author to the list. Joining me today to talk about his new book, sixty-one, is NBA All-Star Chris Paul. Chris, welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Jerry, what's happening? Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm really looking forward to this, man. Uh, let's let's get right to it. Let's talk about your grandfather, Nathaniel Jones. He's the inspiration for the book. All the lessons that he and his family taught you. Why is
1: now the time to share your story? Well. Um... You know, it's funny. My my grandfather was everything to me, to my family. uh, And I lost him when I was 17. And you just never know when the the right time is to tell a story. I definitely knew that right after the story happened, um, after the tragedy and losing my grandfather, um, I wouldn't have been as reflective as I am now. Even five years ago, I wouldn't have been as reflective as I am now. But now, uh, having kids of my own that are 14 and 10, it really gave me an interesting perspective of how important that relationship was with my grandfather and all the things that I learned from him day in and day out just by watching him.
0: Chris, I wanted to talk about uh, who you collaborated with this uh, book with, uh, Michael Wilbon, uh, former post columnist, uh, ESPN yep. commentator. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I have the same extension at the Washington Post that Wilbon had for 30 years. Uh, it, it, I think about that every day, just kind of the sense of responsibility and, and keeping the tradition going. What was it like to work with Wilbon? How did he bring out your voice as an author?
1: Man, it was unbelievable. And I, I've known Mike since, uh, since I was in college, actually probably since I was in high school. So I remember when he was with the Post And when I set out to write this book, uh, I knew that I was still playing or whatnot. And I knew that I was going to need someone to help me at least craft uh, how to write it and what it was going to look like. And I couldn't think of anybody that I respected more than Mike than Wilbon. And he was just amazing. And I sat in this office during the pandemic and had conversation after conversation with him just so that he could hear my story, me and my brother. And it was an unbelievable process. And I couldn't imagine working with anybody other than Mike.
0: Let's talk about who this book is dedicated to, Papa Chili. Uh, You give a very humorous and vivid description of him with grease on his hands from the auto shop and his thick southern drawl. But what also stood out to me was when you said, and I'll quote you here, he thought it was a blessing to be a blessing.
1: How did he live that out? yeah so uh it was a unique relationship with my granddad while he worked hard and uh he taught us all these lessons. he was a fun person to be around, man, just seeing that picture of him right there gives me goosebumps, man, because he was just uh he just knew how to balance it he knew how to make us work for things, but then he also knew how to to show us love and console us when when needed to um and, you know, him saying that it's a blessing to be a blessing was his way of basically saying, you know, when you meet somebody and you'd be like, how you doing? And they'd be like, I'm above ground. <laughs> you know, you just, you're just glad to be alive and being able to, to be in a situation where you can help others.
0: And North, North Carolina is a different kind of south from like Tennessee where I was born and I was raised in Kentucky. But uh, a lot of these lines from, from the book, it just kind of reminds me of of black southern talk um but yep. i wanted to talk to you about papa chili and he wasn't satisfied with renting why was it important for him to own his own sh- service shop jones chevron
1: yeah so when you're a kid you don't really know anything you just know what you're taught and what you see and uh for me showing up at my granddad's service station that was just he was working you know and that picture right there is from my granddad's gulf that i didn't even get a chance to experience it was always the chevron um when i was born but the story behind that gulf was my grandfather wanted uh that land and the the white man that owned that land said he wouldn't sell it to a black man and so that's why my grandfather went up the street to uh you know the Chevron that he ended up having was probably about five to 10 minutes away from that Gulf. That Gulf is actually maybe two or three minutes away from Winston-Salem State University. And so my grandfather just went further up the street, sort of closer to my grandmother's house and, and and made his stand there with, uh with the Chevron.
0: Chris, how did he influence you as, as what you've become as a businessman? I mean, you're, you have a production company. uh, you're, Uh, a smart investor, just uh, how much of that does that go back to your grandfather?
1: You know, I was 17 when my grandfather uh, was murdered. And so I didn't know what to feel or what to know then. I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know much about anything. I knew about, you know, church, basketball and, and my family. And so it's crazy the way that life works that as I got, started getting older and getting into the NBA and getting into business, the things that my grandfather taught me over those 17 years started to come into play, right? The ownership aspect. And my parents started teaching me things because when you're a kid, sometimes they don't give you all the information. So uh, excuse my grandfather's will to just never take no for an answer, to always be hardworking, to always be thoughtful. Um, I think that's how he's had a impactful, you know, meaning in all the different things that I've tried to do business-wise.
0: Chris, I wanted to read a a passage from from 61 that that stood out to me. Uh, Of course, I've always wanted to be explosive down the lane and dunk on everybody, who wouldn't? But I've learned from Papa to be scrappy, to use my perceived disadvantage as an advantage. How do I find the edge on guys without using physicality? I'm not necessarily tall for an NBA player, but I learned early on to be creative and to know how to pass, score, and win using whatever methods I could. I think the game. When when I think about you, I think about there's the charming Chris Paul, and then there's the relentless competitor uh, on the court. How much did Papa's
1: example uh, really influence the way that you play? Yeah, I think Papa influenced the way that I play and just he never, he never gave us shortcuts, right? He just never gave us shortcuts. I think my brother played a huge role in the, the way that I play and my mentality. But my grandfather, it was just in any and everything, there was no shortcuts. So, I mean, I'm eight years old and I'm out in the driveway at the service station trying to figure out how to open the hood of a, of a car. And all cars are different. Some cars are different as far as where they put the hood and where uh, the stand is going to be to hold the hood up. But if I was out there struggling, my grandfather wouldn't just do it for me. You know, He would sort of make me figure it out. And that's just the, all, all, that's just the way it's always been my entire life is there's no shortcuts and you got to work for whatever you get. Chris,
0: let's, let's talk about why this book is called 61. Um, your grandfather was, was murdered as you have referenced by five teens in 2002. I think that was just one day after you had committed to play for Wake Forest. Yep. Several days later, you play your, the first game of your senior year of high school. Uh, but before we talk about that 61 point tribute, we have a clip. Let's take a look.
1: His total left him just six points
0: away from the state record for most points in a game. But as he walked to the foul line, that didn't
1: matter. 61 did. I walked to the free throw line, the referee gave me the ball and shot an air ball right out of there, and my coach took me out. I just looked at my dad and started crying. It's like he just, everything came out of him. He just walked over to me and gave me a hug, and he just fell in my arms, and that's when I just, it just tore me up, you know, because of what he had just done. Chris, what
0: meth? Message where you're trying to send by scoring 61 points that day?
1: Man, that's wild. That still gave me goosebumps <laughs> seeing my my family over there. I, I think I was just trying to um, send a message to my grandfather, you know what I mean, to let him know how much we missed him, how much we loved him. And it being the day after the funeral, all of my family, if you look up, if you could see up in the stands, all of my family from All up north, all my family from up up in DC, up in Marlboro, all that area had came down for the funeral, and they all stayed for the game. So, I think for me, it was just about you know showing gratitude for my grandfather and what he'd done for our family, and I wanted to to do that with all of us there.
0: Chris, let's talk about race and parenting. We're we're both black fathers. Uh, In the book, you talk so much about how because of being an NBA player and so forth. Your kids have been able to have a certain privilege, but you also talk about them having to navigate what you call the realities of the divide in this country. What have you taught them about how to navigate America?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's, it's a constant conversation. Me and my wife are constantly having conversations with my kids day in and day out. Because things are sort of always changing, but but one thing that's a constant is always going to be their skin color, right? And so, uh, as I talk about in the book, uh, when the tragic uh, incident happened with with George Floyd, we had real conversations with our kids, and we're always trying to, you know, tell them about how to move and how to how to do this and how to do that. And it's um, it's an unbelievable feeling, I tell you, to be a parent. It's it's like one of the coolest but most important jobs that you have because you realize that you, you, you learn so much from your parents. And we don't parent the same way that our parents did, but there are bits and pieces that you take, that you take away. There's this that you may take away, but you also have to understand that times change. Like we don't have a yard where my son or my daughter has to get up and cut the grass every day. So there's other ways that we have to build in these different responsibilities to show them uh, what the work looks like, you know, and about uh, being grateful and being thankful. But uh, mo- most of all, you know, we, we have two amazing kids who I, I love to death and um, just try to give them real life experiences to show them what life is going to be like one day when uh, they get out of mom and daddy's house.
0: You showed them the entire George Floyd video. Yes. Why did, why did you and your wife make that choice?
1: Yeah, we, we made that choice because um, we feel like as parents, a lot of times people try to shelter their kids from different situations, right? But instead of sheltering them, we want to you know, talk to them and communicate them about the realities that's out there. And so in showing them, uh, my daughter, I, I, like I said, I'll never forget it, you know, she was crying and she was like, is this gonna happen to Chris? But if you don't have these conversations with your kids and then they run into a situation where maybe they are pulled over or they're somewhere and they don't understand um, how they're viewed or how they're looked at, then um, they may do something that you know, causes a crazy reaction that you, know, you regret for the rest of your life. So just trying to educate them on, on things that's going on
0: tell me about uh, your work with the Chris Paul Foundation and the ways that you're trying to level the playing field for disenfranchised communities.
1: Yeah. So uh, through our Chris Paul Family Foundation, um, we started years ago, but we made this huge transition. One year uh, we were visiting schools and me and my wife was walking through the school and we saw all these smart boards and iPads and all these different things. And uh, all I could do walking through there was thinking about you know the, the kids on the other side of town who weren't having access to all of this technology and things that are improving classrooms. So what we did was we started going into the inner cities and we went to boys and girls clubs and uh, State Farm was actually a huge partner in doing this in a few different cities, but we wanted to start putting learning labs, learning centers in these different underserved communities. And it's been really cool. It's been really cool. And also through our foundation, we have a thing called Club 61. And obviously because of the book now, everyone understands why 61 is so important. But through Club 61, we bring five kids from every NBA city that I played in and we bring them out to LA and we take them to Goldman Sachs and talk to them about financial literacy. We do health and wellness with them. We do morning yoga. We do all these different things just to try to make sure, make sure that they understand that people really do care about their well being. Chris, you've
0: had one incredible calendar year, and we're not even talking about where you're gonna play next season, but I think people forget you graduated uh, in December. Uh, you started at Wake Forest, but you graduate with a degree from uh, Winston-Salem State uh, University. Why is it important for, why was it important for you to graduate from an HBCU?
1: You know, it was, it was important for me to graduate first and foremost, because uh, I went to college back in 2003 and went to the MBA in 2005. So I worked on my degree already to begin with because just completion, I I wanted to get my degree and during the pandemic, uh, but before the pandemic, Uh, myself, along with Courtney Mays, who works with me, we really started trying to champion Black designers, right? Which sort of also happened where we started wearing all these different HBCU uh, paraphernalia, whether it was hoodies, shirts, and all this. So it was actually cool for me because I grew up around a lot of different HBCUs. I think there's 12 HBCUs in North Carolina. And so... Uh, a lot of different HBCUs started reaching out saying, Where is this, where is that. So, what it did was it gave me an opportunity to educate myself on other HBCUs. And then, in the process during the pandemic, when I said, You know what, let me go back to school and get my degree, you know, as much as I've been trying to do for HBCUs, why not graduate from one? Just so happens, Winston Salem State University is an HBCU in my hometown. And I enrolled in December 16th uh, 2022, 2022. Yep. I graduated.
0: Let's, uh, let's get into a little bit of basketball here, man. You've had uh, an eventful off season already, and it hasn't even gotten started A week. Uh, you're headed to the Golden State Warriors. That's been reported. I'm not even sure in the NBA, uh dynamics of it all if that trade is official. Uh but what I'm more curious about is what what's left for you uh in the NBA besides the obvious. Like we we know you'd like to win a championship, but what's your why? I mean 38 years old, be 39 by the end of next year. What's your why for continuing
1: to play? Just the competitive drive and the fact that I love it. I love it. I get to wake up every day and say that I play basketball is my way of life. You know, and so um, I'm grateful that I get a chance to play uh, at a high level. And I've just always been a believer in, like, why does your age have to say that you're done? Right. And so that's that's my my why, you know, I mean, to compete and to play. Uh, There's no joy like being out on that court competing. And so I want to continue to compete for a championship.
0: Chris, to be such a superstar, you know, now that you play deep into your 30s, you start to lose a little bit of that influence on, a, on picking exactly where you get to play. But every place that you've been, you've been able to make this immediate impact. Uh, why is that? And, and do you see that continuing?
1: Uh, definitely see it continuing. Uh, but why is that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know, I, literally, I, just, I just hoop, I play. And I think when I get to a team, wherever it may be, I'm just, uh, I just sort of always try to pride myself on being selfless and understanding that whatever the team needs and whatever we need to do to win, I'm gonna try to do. You know, It's not always gonna work out like that, but I always know that no matter what situation I go into, that I'm coming from the right place.
0: Charles Barkley has always called you the greatest leader in the NBA currently. Uh, how, how do you view leadership? And I mean, you're, you're not afraid of conflict and, and, and never will be. Um, yet, I think the people who have played with you uh, definitely have seen the benefit, even though it's not always been buddy, buddy.
1: Yeah, um, the older I've gotten, I realize the importance of hard conversations. And I've been like that for a while. And even even playing on the court, I'm extremely competitive. But I, I said it over and over again, I'll never ask a teammate to do something I wouldn't do myself. Um, and leadership is hard. Leadership is hard because, you know, you're, you're actually the person who a lot of times have to make decisions. And you can't be on one side or the other. You know, at some point you got to make a decision. But um, leadership is forever changing, evolving, because in order to lead, you got to be able to follow. So, yep.
0: You're about to play with another cast of characters that you've uh, gone head to head with and had some intense battles with. That's nothing new in your career. Uh, How how does, uh, it's just kind of comical to us uh, who've watched the game, just that these rivalries turn into teammates Uh, how do you manage those relationships and what do you think? What do you think that this new, uh, adventure is going to be like?
1: Yeah, it's definitely going to be a little different putting on that uniform for the first time, but, uh, you know, what's, what's wild is you understand, uh, how nice it is to be around like-minded guys. You know what I mean? Those guys over there, they, they've done it. They've won multiple championships together. And so I think just. Just getting in there to to see how I can help, um, be a part of that piece, you know, be a, be a part of that puzzle. I'm excited about it.
0: Chris, you shared a, a story about your grandfather and how he cared for a Vietnam veteran who had uh, PTSD. Um, how did that um, inspire you to prioritize healthcare for retired players when you were president of the Players Association?
1: Um, man, you know, so it's crazy. His name, his name's Happy. And my dad actually just seen Happy at the, at the barbershop last week. I was somewhere and my dad sent me a text. He was like, guess what? Happy just walked in here into the barbershop. And, you know, like I said, I was a kid, never knowing how that stuff would come full circle. Um, but just seeing the way my granddad cared for him, meant a lot. You know, because being kids, me and my brother thought everything was funny, you know, like, oh, why does he look like that? What is that? You know, and to see how my grandfather cared for him uh, really something really is something that stuck with me for a long time and always has. And so when we had an opportunity to get health care for all the retired players, um, it was a no brainer. It was a no-brainer because I've I said over and over again, the one thing that we all as players have in common is that one day we will all be retired players. So understanding how you take care of those uh, who, who took care of you is important.
0: Chris, when you look at the history of the league, uh, players of your size don't play 18, 19, 20 years. Don't play into their, their late 30s. What's been the key to longevity for you? What advice would you give to younger players who
1: want to play as long as you have? Man, uh, you know, while it's always the joke of, oh, you ain't won, you ain't won, I think um, the cool part about the longevity aspect is it's a bunch of different things, honestly, is uh, making sure that you keep the main thing the main thing, uh, making sure that you're putting in the work day in and day out, you got to have really, really good people around you and understand that it's not just you. But um, it, it's hard. <laughs> I never act like it's easy. It's hard. It's getting up when you're on vacation, right, with, with, with your family and still getting up at 6 a.m., going to the gym and doing the workouts. is sacrificing a lot. It's missing a lot, you know. So um, there, there's a lot that goes into it. So I would never want somebody to think that it's just, it's the easiest thing ever, but um, like I said, um, this is my job, <laughs> like playing basketball. I went to the gym and shot, shot this morning with my son and that was work, so uh, I'll never complain about that.
0: What, at, at 38, what, what do you think is the, the hardest thing in terms of maintaining your body?
1: Um... Man, the hardest thing, I don't know. It's probably uh, just the off season, you know, cause there's not really an off season. So on days you managing, uh, this morning I was in the gym, lifting at 6 a.m. Then I got done with my lift, got in the car, drove my daughter to volleyball camp. Then I went to the gym, got some shots up with my son. Now I'm here. Uh, Then my son has workouts at two, (laughs) you know? So I think, you know, the the hardest thing at this point isn't um, like the body or basketball and all that. It's just trying to make sure I'm giving time to uh, the people that I love, you know, especially my kids.
0: Chris, as we close, uh, something that you recently said that that very much sounded uh, like classic you, vintage you. You said you'd love for somebody who hates you to read your book
1: why yep um because i'm i'm one of those people that i'm i'm open to all different perspectives right and guess what i'm not naive enough to think that everybody likes me or loves me but it's almost like when you do a blind taste right and you you eat something that you probably would have never ate and then you're like oh i really like this i'm just curious i'm always very curious to see if someone could read the book uh with the open mind if they didn't like me i would I'm, I've heard from family members, I've heard from friends, whatnot. So uh, just just curious.
0: Uh, the book is called 61. Uh, it's a raw portrayal of you uh, and, and your family and your grandfather in particular. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Chris Paul, thank
1: you for joining Washington Post Live. Jerry, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this.
0: Thanks for listening. Toys, stay up to date with this series. Subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America, an Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen.
1: We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets.
0: The world you know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. You just can't miss make every night
1: a watch party only on FanDuel.